Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the ninth episode of season nine of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalog, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. First off, I hope you enjoyed my chat with uh, Matt Jaffe, which kicked off this month's Guest Amber feature. I know at least a couple of you have contacted me to say how much you're enjoying his music, and that's always a thrill. So if you haven't checked out Matt yet, please do. He's, he's fantastic. I also have a couple of non-petty episodes coming up for you too, as I'm taking time off over the break, and what better way to relax than listening to music and writing down my thoughts about it and sharing it with you. The rest of the Guest Amber lineup is as follows. This week, you'll hear my conversation with the absolutely lovely Russell Mark from the fantastic Pasadena-based duo, The Next Doors. After that is a conversation that I've been waiting for about 18 months or so to have with the hilarious and prolific podcaster, musician, record store owner, and gardener to the stars, or at least one star with two R's, at Will Porteous. There's a fantastic rock and roll story in that episode that you're not going to want to miss. After that, I'll have Chris Gillette and Doc Wiley, uh, the two founding members of The Waiting, which is a Montana-based Tom Petty tribute band. And my last guest member episode will be a conversation with Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep. I'll also have a bonus episode with a very different kind of fan chat, but I'm going to tell you more about that closer to the time. Lots more action on social media this week. On Instagram, at CouplesRob commented on the Dark of the Sun, saying, To me, it's about the afterlife. There are numerous examples. Past my days of great confusion, and then in brackets he says living, past my days of wondering why. Also, when he mentions observing a freedom he'd never known before. So, as with Two Gunslingers, you can see how this lyric is also one that you can wear as a different suit depending on your mood or your perspective. I love this comment from my honorary producer, Paul Roberts, who says, Great pod. As a non-muso, a lot of the techno stuff whizzes over my head. What a lovely song. Probably one of the deepest petty deep cuts. Really suffers from the company it keeps on a colossal side one. I'll rate it an eight. So first off, thanks as always, Paul. Uh, Paul's been with me pretty much from day one, I think, or very close to. And I mean it when I say that he's a a genuinely good egg. Uh, Maybe one of the eggiest of good eggs. And his observation about the other songs on side one is spot on. We haven't had anything below an eight yet, and we still have some humdingers to go on this record. Responding to Bob Reedy's comment that Dark of the Sun is an underrated song, J.P. Kaufman calls it a great sing-along, and echoing Paul Roberts' thoughts says, maybe there are just too many good songs on one album, moving so smoothly from one to the next that some get overlooked. He goes on to say, I just can't find anything wrong with this song to deduct points other than a lack of popularity or live play. Sheer peer pressure brings me down to a nine because no one will give it a ten then maybe it is sung a bit light and fluffy, making it feel like there isn't as much power to the words as the four lead songs, um, 8.5. But how he blends it so well into the album with familiarity is definitely intentional, which gives this song a really important role. Okay, 8.5 is a standalone song, but 9 as part of the album. And JP closes by saying, the album stands as one in the dark of the sun. Nice to play, JP. Uh, My trusty pal Pete Nesta cleared up my pronunciation woes by linking me to a song I'd forgotten about by R.E.M. called Cuyahoga. So there we go, it's Cuyahoga. I've learned something new. Um, Jill Lucas pointed out to me that the YouTube version of the podcast wasn't available. And when I went back and checked, it's because of my inclusion of a snippet of Words of Love by the Beatles, which blocked that episode in the UK on YouTube. So that shows you how fickle rights can be. I played less than 30 seconds of that clip to illustrate a, a sonic similarity I heard between that song and the solo Mike Campbell plays in The Dark of the Sun. And if you want to hear why YouTube blocking is such a sticky, crazy, and frankly, very frustrating thing, you should go search Rick Beato copyright on his YouTube channel. He gets into the technical weeds around rights ownership, fair use, and music appreciation. Over on Twitter, Stephen Ursel said, Good song. 
really evocative lyrics that still maintain a level of ambiguity. To me, anyway. Uh, me too, Stephen. Like all Tom's best songs, and I've said this before, he manages to make specificity very general in an almost effortless way. Stephen finishes by drawing this parallel. Minor point, really, but the hey, yeah, yeah bit gives me strong Springsteen vibes. Not sure if it's a specific song of his or just the way Tom delivers it. And I think, Stephen, it's probably the latter. Uh, I'd actually responded that I'd, you know, I'd, I'd drawn a similar straight line between Tom and Bruce on that, that line in the song, but didn't bring it up in the episode because they're contemporaries, and I think it can be easy to assume influence where none need necessarily exist when we're talking about artists of this caliber. The way Tom delivers that line is really the only way it works for the song, and any number of rockers from around the same approximate vintage would almost certainly have done the same thing. You know, think Bob Seger, Jackson Brown, etc. So, absolutely, I hear it too, Stephen, but I think it's a case of maybe divergent evolution rather than parody or homage in this case. Today's episode looks at the last track from side one of Into the Great Wide Open, the Mike Campbell-driven All or Nothing. There's a link to the song in the episode notes if you want to check it out before we dig in, as I don't play clips from the song itself in the episode. Um, this is to avoid, again, we just talked about rights issues, so I don't want to fall foul of the Tom Petty estate or have any copyright issues that mean my episodes get taken down, so go check it out on uh, in the episode notes if you want to listen to the song. <laughs> In Conversations with Tom Petty, author Paul Zolo says, You said that you wish All or Nothing got radio play instead of Out in the Cold. And Tom responds, Yeah, I think it might have been a better song. Time plays tricks on you, though. I went around for years thinking Out in the Cold wasn't that good. Out in the Cold got a lot of FM play. I thought they were going after it because it had the big beat. And though Out in the Cold did receive more airplay in the US, All or Nothing was actually released as a single in Germany in 1992, but surprisingly did not chart. Tom also says of All or Nothing that, it was Mike's thing. It was mostly Mike's track, and I don't think we made many changes to it. And when you listen to the song, it's immediately evident that this is a song written by a stupendously talented guitarist. The song opens not with subtly laid guitars, but an unstoppable six-string barrage. It's a brooding, ominous, jagged F minor rhythm section strumming pattern that plays on the two, and then the three, three-and, four, and four-and. So immediately, this is wildly and completely different to anything we've heard before on either of the Jeff Lynne-produced albums. It's also strange that this is in F minor, and I assume there's a capo on the first fret because guitarists just don't really play in F or F minor very comfortably. I think, too, that the rhythm part is doubled and panned into the left and right channels rather than being mixed right in the middle because you get this really, it's a very expansive sound, and while, you know, I'm not a producer and I could be wrong, it sort of has that type of feel to me. Maybe I'll ask my good pal Randy Woods what he thinks and report back sometime. Also unusually for a Lynn-era track, Stan Lynch opens the song with a gunshot snare fill that ends on his floor tom. The bass is sitting right on that root note an octave above the lowest position because it's going to need to drop down into that lower register later in the song. There's a really light synth pad in here too, played by either Ben Montage or Jeff Lynne, but I'd guess it was Jeff Lynne for reasons I'll maybe get into later. And it's balanced way back in the mix because the star of this intro is Mike Campbell's searing, maniacal slide guitar part. When Paul Zolo comments on this intro part, Tom says he's so good on slide guitar. George Harrison just thought Mike was right up there with the best of them on slide. He told me time and time again, there's Ry Kuda and then there's Mike Campbell. And I have to tell you folks, that's a pretty strong compliment because Ry Kuda, along with Mike, is right up there with Billy Gibbons in terms of slide guitar masters that I love to listen to. Should, if you ever never heard it, check out um, the album Into the Purple Valley by Ry Kuda. Fantastic slide guitar on that. And slide guitar is so much more difficult to play than regular fingering on the fretboard. When you're playing without a slide, the frets will lock you precisely onto the note you want to play. 
But when you bend the strings or you play with the slide, you're flying without a parachute. And as Tom says, it's more like a voice. It's all about vibrato and how you ring the notes out of the guitar with this piece of metal or glass. To compound this technical challenge, the way Mike plays it is very staccato, which is a very, in capital letters, Raikuda thing to do. He's not letting the slide notes really sustain very long. He's lifting and dropping that slide onto the neck like a madman. And I'd be super interested to know what type of guitar he played this one on, but I'd be willing to bet it was a Gibson. There's just something about the way those humbucker pickups sound on a Les Paul that makes me, I would say fairly sure, but I, I think that, you know, I think this is what he's playing here. And it's such a trebly tone that sounds like it's had the, the bottom end, the bass cut pretty much right out and the mids and the trebles jacked up to give you that sort of sharp cut glass attack. If this lead guitar part were a character in a movie, I think it would be Joaquin Phoenix's Joker about midway through the movie. It feels like it's barely holding itself together and could become completely unhinged at any moment. It's a gloriously unique and definitive part of the Heartbreakers catalogue and lasts a really satisfying eight bars. And so that's 20 seconds, which is really long for an intro in this era. But it builds the tension in the song so effectively that you simply couldn't shorten it. We get that epic gunshot snare fill uh, leading us into the first verse. Uh, where those really stabby rhythm guitars change and the lead drops out. And forgive me for continually repeating myself over the last few months, but man, there's a lot more guitar here than you think there is. First of all, you get that chugging, distorted guitar playing that sort of epic capoed low E string with a little two-note jump up to the next octave. That's the bedrock for these A sections, and Tom deliberately ends each line of the verse on the three, uh, lyrically, to allow that little jump to accentuate each bar. So he sings through the first three beats in the bar, and then that guitar accent hits the fourth beat. It's a fantastic example again of why Mike and Tom were perfect for each other. Tom just understood how to craft a melody around a song idea or a riff that Mike had brought to him. And we talk lots about opening lyrics. Holy hells. If there's a better opening verse in a Tom Petty song, I don't know what it is. American Girl, maybe? Wildflowers? Something big, I could probably argue. Nah, yeah. I mean, you could pick any of them because Tom was so good at that part of songwriting. But there's something, again, very ominous and almost threatening about these lyrics. Your daddy was a sergeant major. You didn't want to, but he made you. Wipe his brass from time to time. It left a picture in your mind. That's not a happy, healthy father-daughter relationship, folks. That's a kid who was most definitely scared of her dad. And having served 10 years in the military, I can tell you two things. Sergeant majors are one of the scariest breeds of mammal on the planet. And two, there are a lot of alpha males in the military who cannot separate their professional discipline from family life. And he was sergeant in the tank regiment I served with in Germany, who literally had a jail under his stairs that he would lock his children in if they were, in his opinion, out of order. Anyway, look, this is getting a little dark. Uh, let's get back to the song. The other thing that you get here is that rise and fall cadence that's provided by the synth pad. The bass and guitar are sitting on that F minor root, but the last note in that F minor chord goes from C to C sharp to D, back to C sharp, back to C. And you've all heard that progression a million times in a massive, massive movie franchise. It's the same movement in the minor key that the James Bond theme music uses. Though that piece moves every two beats, where this moves every four, and it's in a different key. Um, but you know what? Here, listen to this. I've pitched J the James Bond theme up, and if you listen to this and then think about that ascending, descending um, progression in All or Nothing, same damn thing. And we're not done talking about this verse section yet because Mike Campbell is still sliding around quietly in the background and his guitar is now drenched in echo to give it a sort of a hallucinogenic supernatural feel. And this lasts until the pre-chorus, which is the you know section, when we get this ascending build into the chorus. This lead-in also has those synths, again, still mixed down nice and low, so they're, you know, a suggestion rather than a bold statement, 
with the bass matching the climb up and Mike coming off the palm muted chugging here and there to allow a note to sustain just a little bit longer. So I, I love this. It's a great pre-chorus, this one. The chorus is then returned to the F minor and that jagged angular constant F minor chord. Actually, it's probably just an F5 because the synths and the bass move the chord progression along underneath it. It's a really simple eight-bar chorus. You want it all, you want it all, all or nothing. You want it all. But that's an extremely menacing line, isn't it? It's almost like the movie sentiment of, if I can't have you, no one will. It's binary, all or nothing. There's greed in the all, but there's nihilism in the nothing. In a song full of great moments, the way Tom sings the second verse is among the best of them. The first two lines are sung, I've written softly here, but I don't know if softly is, is exactly the right word, maybe fluidly or languidly, with the last syllable in each word falling away gently. And those first two lines are more vulnerable. Here I am, a fallen arrow, and my load is wide, my street is narrow. It invokes images of an, an aging warrior who's starting to feel frail and much less invincible than he was in his youth. But that warrior's spirit and attitude comes through in the next line. My skin is thicker, my heart is tougher, and there's something about the way Tom makes those R's a little more punchy than the W's in arrow and narrow. Then the coup de gras. I don't mind working, but I'm scared to suffer. And I love how he tags the but onto the end of the first half of the line rather than the beginning of the second half. Again, it accentuates the doubt in I'm scared to suffer, which grammatically stands alone as a complete sentence. From here, we head back into the chorus again, and this chorus proceeds as the first did with no real deviation. The little guitar licks and fills all through the verses and chorus in this song are different, and I guess that Mike probably played a whole bunch of different takes off the cuff, and then they sat in afterwards and pieced together the best of them to complement the song as it built. From this second chorus, we head into a 15-bar solo. And how about that for subversion of the full moon fever into the great wide open formula, huh? It's another tour de force performance by Mr. Mike Campbell as he slashes and hacks his way around the fretboard. When Paul Zolo comments to Tom that this type of playing is not easy, Tom responds, no, it's not easy. It's an acquired thing. You have to work at it. But it's very natural to him. He has a perfect vibrato and a perfect pitch. He's a marvelous player. Somebody I've known my entire life and I still marvel at his playing. And he goes on to say, you could almost take Mike for granted because anything you ask him to do, he did it and more. I don't remember ever throwing anything his way that he couldn't do. He could do it and do it better than you thought. He will give you back your idea better than you had it in the first place. That's a great musician. All right, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. In 1980, Into the Great Wide Open producer Jeff Lynne with his band The Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, wrote and recorded the songs on side two of the worldwide hit album Xanadu. But which female star, who has a tangential link back to Tom, sang all the songs on side one? Was it A, Stevie Nicks? B, Annie Lennox? C, Olivia Newton-John? Or D, Debbie Harry? The answer, of course, is Olivia Newton-John. In his superb memoir, Tom Petty and Me, author and PR man John Scott tells the story of traveling from Memphis to Nashville with a very young Olivia Newton-John. Here's what he told me when I interviewed him back in October of 2021. But anyway, we did go to Nashville. Yeah. And MCA would, gave me a cassette of all the new releases that were coming out. 
And so we decided to put them in the cassette machine. And as we're driving to Nashville, which was which was a trip driving with yeah. me and John, my God. Anyway, um, she we would say, "Oh, that's pretty good." No, that song's not very good. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a song called "Depot Street" came on, and we both went, "That's pretty good. That's a nice little reggae song." And she said, yeah, but they've got this kind of a silly name, Mud Crutch. <laughs> and so I called, but I went to the radio station, I got it played on the station. And I called my boss, my first ad. I got my first ad, it's Mud Crutch. And he goes, John, it's only a single. There's no yeah. album. Nobody cares. It's on shelter. Just work living Newton John's record. Yeah. Tom's link to Stevie Nicks is, of course, far less tangential. As the Heartbreaker's little sister, the artistic connection between Tom and Stevie was front and center for the world to see, but the connection between Steve and Tom's first wife, Jane, was also a close one. In fact, the title of Nick's signature hit, Edge of 17, came from her mishearing Jane Petty telling her that she met Tom at the age of 17, but that North Florida accent caused Nick's to mishear it and think that it was Edge of 17. Debbie Harry played her debut LA gig with Blondie at the Whiskey on February 9th, 1977, on a bill listed as Blondie with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which was also Tom's LA debut with the Heartbreakers. Tom had played at the legendary venue as early as 1974 with Mud Crutch and would grace its stage for the last time on the 19th of September, 1982. Annie Lennox was a Malibu neighbor and friend of Tom's in 1987 when an arsonist burned down Tom's house, famously. In Warren Zane's biography, he writes that the legendary eurythmic singer went out and bought clothes for the Petties bringing them to the hotel that would be the family's home for the next few days before the rock and roll caravan tour would begin. Your question for this week is this. In my conversation with John Scott, what did he tell me he crawled around looking for on a hotel floor with a bikini-clad Olivia Newton-John? Was it A, a contact lens, B, a ring, C, an earring, or D, her lucky two-headed quarter? Okay, back to the song. Sweet Chariots of L.A. Swing Low. At twilight time, the smog makes a rainbow. So keep one eye on the weather. You had it good, you want it better. You know? Who writes like this? Seriously. Obviously, the first line is a superbly contemporary spin on the African-American spiritual song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. A song that, weirdly, has long been an anthem for English rugby fans. Sweet Chariots. Listen to how he really emphasizes those syllables. It's so dramatic. Cinematically, these are the multitudinous motorized vehicles in the City of Angels. They're exhausts as they head back out to the suburbs, creating the smog that makes the rainbow. And if the weather changes, and given the thunder of Stan Lynch's Tom fills, it sounds likely this combination of hazardous circumstances could lead to any number of cataclysmic outcomes. You had it good, you want it better. Revisiting and reprising the chorus theme of All or Nothing, never being satisfied. It's a very polarized lyric, uh, and so incredibly evocative and poetic, and well, just petty-esque. The last verse leads us into the final chorus and outro, which builds in intensity and abandon, with some call-and-response harmony vocals added to each nothing, and Tom's howls and wails becoming more and more desperate, all punctuated by Mike Campbell starting to add to the sonic maelstrom with that screeching, tortured slide guitar part being played high up on the bottom E string. Then we get maybe my favorite ending in Tom's catalogue. And this is a production piece because on that last nothing, the first syllable still has the entire band arrangement and then it's cut off savagely to let the 
thin second syllable be the last thing you hear. And so the band hasn't stopped playing there. The faders have just been dropped on the mixing uh, desk at that point to create that jarring conclusion. And the implication I've always taken from this is that in this conversation about all or nothing, this final act of musical vandalism is the protagonist choosing nothing instead of all. It's a perfect way to end this song, and what an incredible way to end side one of a record. When I went to look up how many times All or Nothing had been played live, I was genuinely staggered to find that it was only ever brought out on tour four times. And all four times were in a five-day span in 1991, so there was clearly some reason why this one was taken out of the set list. I'll leave a link to a live version from the second time it was played live in Noblesville, Indiana, on September 10th, 1991, in the episode notes, because although it's not the cleanest recording, Tom's vocal is fantastic. Now, so I'd mentioned earlier that I don't know if it's Ben Montench playing on this song. It's so simple, a keyboard part, that it could have been something that Jeff Lynn or Tom put down, or even Mike Campbell, who is credited with keyboards on this album. And as it's a Mike Campbell joint, maybe this is the way he played it. And I'm also wondering if Jeff Lynn played the bass on this one too. So if Ben Mont and Howie Epstein weren't actively involved in the recording of this song, maybe they just weren't as attached to it in the same way. Whatever the reason, it's astonishing that this one wasn't ever dusted off and given another airing you know, during the Fillmore run or the 40th anniversary tour, say. Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. Look, we all know this one's shaking out, right? It's a top-table deep cut. Heck, it's a top-tier track, period. One of Tom's most poetic, dark, brooding lyrics and a superb piece of restless, slightly unhinged lead guitar work from Mike Campbell that is left to shine by a fairly simple arrangement otherwise. So, is this one all, or is it nothing? Of course it's all. It's 10 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. Uh, I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. You can also check out my other podcasts, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with Randy Woods, um, and the Ultimate Catalog Clash that I host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. That show is actually reaching the conclusion of its first season, um, and next week will be the season one wrap when we talk about all things Phil Collins' era Genesis. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and again, please leave a rating or review if you haven't done that. Um, keep talking to me on social media. It's great reading these comments out and, of course, having that conversation with you online. Uh, and as your weekly reminder, The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with The Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms or go to your local independent record seller to grab some actual physical media especially Spotify. Spotify pays artists almost nothing. And really, people like Jeff Bezos and, you know, all these other rich people, they don't need any more of your money. But, you know, if you're looking for official merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to TomPettyProject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook, if you're not already a member. They're great groups. And there's lots of awesome people in there. So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with the opening track from side two of Into the Great Wide Open, the anthemic halftime swaying song, All the Wrong Reasons. Bye-bye. <laughs>